Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to do in this audio, Acts chapter 27, verses 33 through 44. The content of this passage of Scripture is Paul's shipwreck on Malta as he is leaving Caesarea after having been put in jail there for two years because of the persecution of the Jews. He appealed to Caesar, and he's on his way to Rome. He has left Fair Havens at the southern, on the southern shore of Crete, heading toward Phoenix, also on the southern shore of Crete, when a big storm, a northeaster, comes barreling over Crete and and blew Paul's ship out into the middle of the Mediterranean and drove the ship west until it basically came near to Malta. They were taking soundings and realized they were getting closer and closer, and it was in the middle of the night. And that's where we left off last in our last audio at verse 32. So we start now in verse 33 and 34 in Acts chapter 27. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food. Now the all there means the ship captain slash owner might have been a different owner, might have been the same owner that was this might have been the same person as the captain. Could have been other passengers on the ship. Could have been other pris. There were other prisoners on the ship, and then there were there were Roman legionnaires on the ship. There was a centurion named Julius, and then there were the sailors. Paul urged them all to take food, saying, "Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having." eaten nothing. Remember, it was 14 days with no sunshine, but storm, clouds. They couldn't see the sun and the star in the daytime or the stars at night, which means they couldn't navigate, and they're running around the ship trying to keep the ship from sinking as they're dealing with a storm, and they didn't hadn't eaten yet. Now, when it says you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing, does that mean absolutely, or does that mean having eaten nothing substantial? Well, John Gill denies that it means that they didn't eat anything. Because how are you going to live for 14 days without eating in the middle of a storm? He, John Gill says that this, the company, ship's company could never have lived that long without eating. So Gill and, says, and Adam Clark agrees with him, that this verse that Luke wrote means that the ship's company had eaten nothing regular, just snatching a bite here and there. And I think that's per- perfectly reasonable, because it's hard for me to believe they went for t- 14 days without eating anything. Now, what were their reasons for not eating? They were afraid they were going to die. They were working so hard to keep the ship afloat. It's impossible to cook in a big storm like that, so they just had to munch on some grain or something raw. I don't know what. But they couldn't have eaten much. And so Paul says, look, eat, guys. Now, this... Paul was trying to be nice to him. He also has a, another motive that would be a little bit self-serving is because he couldn't make it to shore unless those sailors were alive and well. And they needed to eat and have their strength to get all the ship's company to shore. So Paul says in verse 35, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. Well, how did Paul know that? Well, he had a vision from an angel, if you recall, where the angel came to him in the middle of the night and said, Every one of you is going to make it. Not one of you is going to die. And so Paul repeats that. Look, you got to eat your food. Don't give up now because if you get your strength back, you're all going to survive. Because I've had a vision from God, from an angel. And by then, of course, Paul is said enough to make people realize this guy is a little bit of a holy man. He, he's a man from God. He knows what he's talking about. That 14 days of storm, by the way, that doesn't mean from the day they left Caesarea 14 days. It means from the day they left Fair Havens in Crete that the storm had risen for 14 days. Now, when Paul says, not one of you will lose a hair from your head, that sounds like one of our metaphors. It actually was a proverb back then, as John Gill and Adam Clark point out, and it means you will be in utmost safety. If you don't lose a hair, you can afford to lose a lot of hair, and you're not hurt at all. 
But if you don't, a fortiori, if you don't even lose one here, you're really safe. John Gill says that Paul was referring to a sailor superstition back then, which was that if you dreamed of shaving your hair, that meant a shipwreck was coming. And the sailors believed that one could only cut one's hair during a storm. And that's, they believe that, so therefore if they dream that they were shaving their hair, that means they're shaving their hair during a storm, which means the boat's going to get wrecked. I don't know. That might be pushing a little bit. The point is that Paul is saying is, hey, you're going to be perfectly safe. We go to verse 35 of Acts 27. After he said these things and had taken some bread, that's Paul, he, Paul, gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he broke it, he began to eat. Now, this is a common practice among God's people, as the NIV study Bible says, to give thanks to God before you eat. Here's some examples. Luke 9:16. Then he, Jesus, took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now, it sounds like that Jesus blessed the food. No, the Greek in the Greek is very clear that no food was ever blessed. You bless God and thank Him for the food. I know in the in English we say bless the food, but that's that's a shorthand that's not quite accurate. You bless God. You give thanks to God. You make God happy. You say good things about God for giving you the food. God is blessed, not the food. Luke twenty four thirty. It was as he Jesus reclined at the table. This of course is the Last Supper. Jesus reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, that means he blessed God, and broke it and gave it to them. So Jesus blesses God, thanks God before he serves food. In 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, Paul says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God in my prayer. Now that doesn't specifically refer to food or giving thanks before a meal, but it is applicable because, hey, if, you got, if you're thankful that you got your daily bread, your food keeps you alive, uh, it's not going to be, God is not going to reject your prayers if you receive that food with thanksgiving. Food that has been received with thanksgiving should not be rejected, in other words. That food is sanctified by the Word of God, set apart by the Word of God. So that's an application. You might not want to stretch it that far, but anyway, it's clear. Paul gave thanks to God before he ate, and so did Jesus. So that's a good example. I remember I had a friend one time, I was about to say the blessing for food, and he says, you, you still do that? He's a Christian, you know. I said, well, of course I still do that. And he said, well, you know, he didn't feel the need to do that anymore. He said, they didn't do that in the Bible. And I was struck by that. And if I had had these verses at the tip of my tongue, I'd say, well, Paul did it, and Jesus did it, so why shouldn't we do it? Now, giving thanks in general to God is very nice, but how about in this circumstance, they're in the middle of a terrible storm that's threatened to kill them, and Paul still takes time to give thanks to God. He thanked God despite the circumstances. He did not thank God because of the circumstances. This was a fantastic testimony to the despairing men on board that ship. Giving thanks to God in such incredibly bad circumstances was a very great sign of faith, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. We go down to Acts 27, verses 36, 37, and 38. They all, that means everybody on the ship, became encouraged and took food themselves. So Paul's words encouraged them. Nothing is more valuable than words of encouragement when things are looking real bad. Took food themselves, and all there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. Why does Luke throw in here there were 276 passengers on the ship? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is it could show that there was a lot of food they ate. A lot of people sat down and ate. Big operation had taken place. Food was distributed to everyone on board, not just to a few. 
That could be the reason. Or it could be to show the reader about the coming attempt to get on the shores. Then I've used 30 Bible points out to show what a great providential thing it was that 276 people survived that shipwreck and made it to the shore. Remember, Paul had promised them, not one of you is going to lose the hair on their head. Not one of you is going to not be saved. You're all going to be saved. And that was because of that vision from the angel that he had earlier during the, in the middle of the storm. Now, when Luke writes this, and all there were 276 of us, there's the we passage, the us on the ship. Remember, Luke's on the ship, and he's writing the story. He knew exactly what was happening because he was there. He experienced it. So he knew. That's how he, he has such good detail on this trip, 276 people, because he was there with them. He was one of the 276. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. Now, remember, they'd already thrown a lot of the cargo into the sea, that in verse 18, and that was wheat that they were carrying from Alexandria to Rome, but then they had kept some back for food, and then now that they had eaten heartily, they threw that overboard because they needed to lighten the ship as much as they could because that ship is getting blown by the wind onto the rocks around Malta, and once that ship hits those rocks, down it would go. Food would do them no good then. They would be in bad trouble. They would probably drown, so they were throwing the the food overboard, trying to keep that ship from moving toward the rocks. And remember, there's four anchors behind the ship that's dragging, trying to slow them down, too. They were trying to get as close to the shore as possible without getting stuck. And if the ship is lighter, that means there's less chance it's going to hit the rocks on the way in. It might float over the rocks rather than hitting the rocks. They had already thrown overboard the cargo, the wheat cargo, in verse 18, and the tackle of the ship, the gear of the ship, in verse 19. And so they were still throwing, and then they threw some more grain overboard still trying to float over those rocks so they could beach that ship on the beach in, at Malta. They don't know it's Malta yet, but that's where it was. Now, Paul encouraged them. Paul's encouragement of the sailors also increased everybody's chances of survival because Paul needed those sailors to get that ship to the shore. So he was helping them. He was helping himself out as well as Julius the centurion, as well as the soldiers, as well as the sailors. He was helping everybody out by encouraging them in the midst of their severe trial we go to verse 39 of acts 27 when daylight came they that's the ship's company did not recognize the land but sighted a bay with a beach they planned to run the ship ashore if they could so they saw the sheep the bay they saw the beach and they said let's get the, this boat on that beach now some people have thought it strange that these sailors did not recognize the land well i don't find it strange at all just because the sailor's a sailor doesn't mean he knows every port of call everywhere in the mediterranean sea there's some other reasons that James Fawcett and Brown point out why it might not be strange that they didn't recognize where they were. The bay that they were blown into was a long way from the normal harbor on Malta, deserted probably. Also, the torrential rain that was pouring would produce a haze on the shore that they couldn't see through very well. And besides, once they landed, they did know where they were because in Acts 28.1, we read this. Once ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Now, I don't know how they learned it. Maybe somebody told them when they landed there, somebody saw them. Or maybe they looked around and said, oh, I recognize this place. This is Malta. Who knows? But there's nothing nothing criticizable, nothing that one can criticize about this verse and say, oh, come on, they should have recognized that land. Acts 27, verse 40, after casting off anchors, still trying to get the ship light, those four anchors that they were, were dragging to slow them, slow them down, they figured now it's time to make our run for the beach. So they let loose the anchors, which also lightened the ship. Gave them a better chance of getting over those rocks. They cast off the anchors. They left them in the sea, left the anchors in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders. 
That means loosening the ropes that held the rudders lashed to the ship above. The rudders were not in place because they weren't using the rudders while they were being blown by the wind. They were just being blown willy-nilly by the wind. The rudders were not useful in the storm. They could have gotten snapped off, actually, I would think. So they loosened the ropes, let the rudders down, because they were going to try to use the rudders to try to steer themselves to that bay, that sandy bay. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. Now, remember in, that, in verse 19, they had thrown the ship's tackle overboard. The spars, the yard arms, the ropes, the certain planks, that kind of stuff, to lighten the ship. They must have kept the foresail behind figuring they might need it at some point. That's a small sail that runs in the that it hangs in the front of the main mast. Of course, they don't have the main mast now. That's probably been thrown overboard too. So I don't know exactly how they hoisted that foresail, but I'm sure they figured out somehow to do it. Maybe in the rigging somewhere. They headed for the beach. I'm not a sailor. I don't, I, I don't understand sailing. But at any rate, and by the way, the KGV has mainsail here. No, it's not the mainsail probably. The NIV has the foresail. Adam Clark criticizes the KJV translation and says it's wrong that it shouldn't it should be foresail, not mainsail, because the mainsail I think was over thrown overboard earlier. Now there was one verse, I think it's where is that? In the first part of this chapter that says that the drift anchor was thrown overboard and some translations have the the main sail was thrown overboard or the and some people say no, it's not the main sail, it's the main mast that was thrown overboard. The Greek word is not easy to translate. Nobody knows what the Greek word means. So we're going to assume that, that the ship's pretty light now, that somehow they got the foresail up to try to give them a little bit of steerage. They got the rudders down, a little bit of, little bit of, uh, of sail to sail onto that beach and to avoid the rocks. We go to verses 41 and 42. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. So unfortunately, they didn't make it to the beach. The bow jammed first and remained immovable. When the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves, that makes sense. The, the bow won't go forward, so when the wave hits the back of the boat, there's nowhere for the boat to go, so it gets crushed by the waves. And, of course, this is a storm. This is a storm surge, big waves. And so the stern begins to break up. Now, verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. So obviously the boat's not going anywhere. And so the only chance anybody had was to dive overboard and start swimming. Well, if prisoners swam away and escaped, all Roman soldiers who were in charge of prisoners, the deal was this with the Roman government. You let a prisoner go away, you die. It's just as simple as that. And so those prisoners, those soldiers realized, man, these prisoners get away. We're dead meat. We're going to die. If a prisoner escaped, the guard's life was taken in his place, as the NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Now... To me, it's sort of reasonable that if your life's in danger, you might want to kill the prisoners if you're a Roman soldier. I mean, I don't hold them up to any kind of saintly standards. I think if I was a soldier, I might have wanted to do the same thing. However, John Gill and Adam Clark say that this was despicable, that these soldiers' actions was despicable, especially after what Paul had done to save their lives. Remember, Paul had told them to stay safely at Fair Havens, and that would have saved their, saved their lives because they wouldn't have gone through the storm. He warned the soldiers that the sailors were escaping with a skiff. That happened in previous verses, not in this audio. But some of the sailors were trying to escape, pretending they were going to let out anchors from the bow. But actually, they were getting ready to haul off with that skiff and leave the boat to die. Because if with no sailors, the boat can't survive because nobody on the boat left on the boat would know how to sail it. And Paul stopped that. He said, hey, guys, these guys are stopping. And if you don't stop them, you're going to die. And then he encouraged them to eat when they were hungry and everybody's panicked. He said, hey, eat. 
So he had done a lot to save those guards' life, and the guards repay him by trying to escape, by trying to kill him. Adam Clark said these gu- these soldier guards were quote bloodthirsty, cowardly villains. So we go to verses 43 and 44. But the centurion, that's Julius, kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. That's their, the centurion was the soldier's boss, commanding officer. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And that means he probably that the those either means probably means those of the ship's company who could swim, and that would include all the soldiers, because Roman soldiers were required to know how to swim, because sometimes when they had to cross rivers and there's no bridges, they would have to swim. So when that centurion said, uh-uh, everybody who can swim, jump over forward for us and get to land, that cleared the boat of soldiers. That means they wouldn't be there to kill Paul. Verse 44, the rest were to follow. That means the rest of the company on the ship, which includes fellow passengers, fellow prisoners, Julius, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus. They were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And this, what kind of debris? Well, doors, tables, planks, mast, beams. John Gill lists all kind of stuff that would be floating off of a shipwrecked ship. So the swimmers swam to shore. The non-swimmers grabbed the planks and debris from the ship. And this way, everyone safely reached the shore, just as Paul had predicted. He predicted that in Acts 27, verse 22, last chapter. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This is after he received that vision from the angel. Despite the violence of the waves, they had to swim through all that pounding surf, and they had to hold on to to the debris in the midst of all all those crashing waves. They still made it all the way to the shore, all 276 of them. And so Paul has reached Malta. We'll take up the rest of his trip from Malta to Rome in Acts chapter 28, starting in the next chapter. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.